Take your Bibles. We will be reading from actually Acts chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Acts 4, 1 to 12. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, As to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builder the builders, and but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Father, your word, stunning, informative, glorious, Showing us who Christ is. Showing us how we should respond to him. We pray, Lord, that as we look at your word today, that you will help us to understand it. And then to apply it to our lives. And to live for your glory. Father, please be glorified now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I kind of want to take and look at the book of Acts, and I'm kind of doing an overview and just looking at evangelism through the book of Acts. And um, I I think it gives us a good picture of what evangelism is. That is, you you know that, and and I'll talk about this when I get into Romans, that evangelism uh, is for the lost and the saved. Do you understand what I mean by that? We proclaim the gospel to save people too, don't we? We need to hear the gospel all the time. We'll see that when Paul talks in Romans that he longs to preach the gospel to the Christians in Rome. Well, why would he want to long to preach the gospel to the Christians in Rome? Why would he long to evangelize the Christians in Rome? Because the answer is what? Christians need the gospel just as much as lost people need the gospel. We know Christ, but we need to be reminded of Christ and what he's done for us, right? But evangelism, speaking of reaching the world, the lost world, proclaiming the gospel to the lost world is what we're kind of focused on today. And we see that well in the book of Acts. I'm pretty sure much of you of what we see today is not uh, sold in evangelism books Today in America, if you get one of the popular books out there about spreading the faith or sharing the gospel or any of those concepts, it looks nothing like what's mentioned here. Evangelism is often presented as lessons on sales tactics that the world uses, you know, like the bait and switch or butter them up or get them saying yes and make it easy for them to say yes. All those things, that's nothing like evangelism in the Bible. It doesn't look anything like it. I know for a fact, being a salesman, I sold rainbow vacuum cleaners. Many of you know it. I know all the sales tactics. I've heard them all. I've saw them all. And guess what? None of them, none of them 
apply to evangelism. None of them. The fact is, is that when we go out, we say, come die with me. Come die with me. That isn't going to, you can't bait and switch that. Come die with me. That's the evangelistic call. But when we drill down into the word of God, we see that evangelizing the lost in scripture is more like warfare. And it's very costly. Remember, as we study the book of Acts, it's description, not prescription. In other words, not everything they do, we're prescribed to do. It's a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, a transition from the predominant focus on the Jews to a predominantly focused on the Gentiles. Acts is the time before the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, as we saw in Acts chapter 1. And we're still in that time. But it's also the Acts of the Apostles, and none of us are apostles and don't think you are. Jesus stated, uh, in short, basically in eight, what the book's all about. He said, don't worry about the kingdom or when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Prepare to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and the rest of the world. That's ultimately what the book's about. So we started examining... Three key principles, and I'm going to add one today. It's actually now four, so yeah, let's see if I can finish this, and hopefully we can. Four key principles of evangelism from the book of Acts that we should take to heart. Let's look at them. First, there was the presentation. We talked a little bit about that. We'll review a little bit, but then move quickly. Second, the confrontation. The confrontation. We talked a little bit about that, but we'll... We'll develop that. And then third, the motivation. And then finally, we're going to add the reaction, the reaction. So there's the presentation, the confrontation, the motivation, and that reaction. So let's look first again at the presentation. We talked last week about how there were presentations of the gospel throughout the book. And, and, and we saw them. There, there are these here uh, that are listed, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, on Pentecost. That was an excellent sermon, isn't it? And we saw the, the heart of the gospel given there. And then in Acts 3, 20, 3, 12 to 26, Peter follows up that sermon with the reaction to the healing of the lame man. Now, it's important to note that sometimes there's these events that happen that kind of spur on an opportunity to share the gospel, and that's what happens. By the way, I think you'll see that as we go along in our message today, the same thing is true of us. Events will happen. Now, we're not going to heal a lame man, and then we're going to be able to, but there's going to be providential occurrences, things that happen in our lives that God brings into our life to set up a perfect picture for us to make much of Christ. Maybe in a car accident. Maybe somebody mistreating us. Maybe getting fired from our job. Uh, whatever it may be, there can be all kinds of events that happen by God's providence that give us opportunity to do what? Proclaim Christ. And we must see those things. We must be keen observers. And we'll, we'll talk about this as we go along. The presentation, you must be ready with your presentation all the time. All the time. Not, well, I think I'll study and in a couple years I'm, I'll be ready to proclaim the gospel to people. You need to get on that now. You need to be able to know who God is. Who mankind is. What did God do to provide... For, for a sinful world. And what is the call of the gospel to the listener? We need to be able to say that and share that. And we see this throughout here. Stephen's stunning sermon, he, he talks about a portion of the gospel. Peter's sermon to Cornelius. Paul's sermon at Pisidia, Antioch. Paul's sermon at sermon uh, on Mar, Mars Hill. And then Paul's defense before Agrippa and Festus. By the way, that's another little point that I, I think you ought to get in your mind and think on your mind. Uh, if you're a born-again believer, you have a testimony, don't you? You have a testimony. Now, I, some of you might say, should I use my testimony in my gospel presentation? And the answer is an emphatic 100%. Yes, the Apostle Paul did it. He did it numerous times. 
But it's important to note that in your testimony, you make much of Christ, not much of yourself, right? And so it, it really is about how God changes us and makes us followers of him and that he saved us, right? And so if your testimony is all about what God has done in Christ for you, then that's a great testimony. But if your testimony is all about how you became this better person, then you probably missed it because it's really not about you, right? But so, so giving your testimony can be a great launching place for the gospel, but ultimately making much of Christ. The context of our setting uh, does determine what we use and how uh, the approach we use. Now, it's not complicated, though, so don't make it overly complicated. Uh, but how much we develop each of the points is important to note that it kind of changes throughout the book of Acts. Early in the book of Acts, the gospel presentations are given to Jewish people in Jerusalem, and they were people who, what, knew the Old Testament. Many of them knew who Jesus was already. They knew, they had heard, they understood that Jesus was there. They didn't necessarily believe in him, but they knew about him. So the gospel presentations spoke to biblically astute people, people that understood basics about the Bible, okay? As we move outside of Jerusalem and the further we go, the gospel presentations have to do what? They have to kind of develop who God is. They have to go and spend more time explaining Old Testament passages and more time explaining who God is. Does that make sense? So by the time you get to Acts chapter 17, Paul's in there and what happens? He, he speaks and they have no clue anything, right? And they're, they're clueless about this known unknown God. And so what does, God, what does Paul do? He, he starts in Genesis and talks about this man that all of mankind came from and that God is sovereign and that he set the habitations and the nations and he's established nations and their boundaries. And so God's in control and he's ever-present and he's always there. So what does Paul do in Acts 17 compared to what he did in Acts 2? He doesn't go back to Genesis. Paul didn't go back to Genesis, or Peter and John didn't go back to Genesis in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4. They, they just what? They already knew that. Their audience knew those things. So what does that mean for us when we're evangelizing and giving our presentation? We should know what the audience that we're talking to, what they understand about God. So it implies some things about our evangelism, doesn't it? We need to ask them questions to find out where they are, to understand where they are, how much they know about the Bible. You know, even basic questions, do you go to church? That's a great question because most of the time people will tell you. But nowadays we understand that if somebody says they go to church, that doesn't mean a lot, does it? So we have to ask questions to find out where the people are so that we can then share the gospel in a way that's clear. Clarity is important, right? It's interesting to me that sometimes when the gospel is being presented, that all four of the elements that I mentioned last time are not always developed completely. Some are assumed. Who is God? That's kind of assumed. For example, in Stephen's sermon, it's very interesting. Stephen spends, in, in Acts chapter 7, he spends a lot of time on which, which one of these. Who is God? Who are we humans? What did God do to help mankind? And fourth, what must be our response to this message? He actually spends a whole bunch of time on number two, who we are as humans. It's really a really direct confrontation, isn't it? Look over at Acts chapter 7. Look at it again. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he says this to them after already giving a beautiful sermon. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, who betray, who, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Woo. Let me ask you a question. Is there any bait and switch in that at all? Is there any buttering them up at all? Is, it, is there any kind of softening it up just a little bit so that, you know, I don't want to cause any offense or anything. No, what did he do? I mean, it, there's no other way to say it than he just reared back and punched him in the face with the gospel, with the law, right? This is, this is about, look how many times he references them. What's he called them? He's talking to the religious elites. He calls them stiff-necked. This is, in, this is, can you imagine tomorrow, today if we went out and knocked on the door and we, they opened up the door and the first thing out of our mouths were, hey, you know, you're stiff-necked. You're rebellious. You're wicked. Your father's killed Jesus. Can you imagine? Again, setting matters. And the spirit working does matter. There, there is some interesting aspects here. These guys have been resisting, haven't they? He's already talked to them four times. They beat him a couple times. Arrested him and flogged him. Right? Now, I don't know about you, but after the first couple times... <laughs> After getting beat, I'd be, well, I think I'll just <laughs> take the lighter side. <laughs> Don't think I'd go with the word stiff-necked. But if the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, and you're submissive to the Lord, the message is about humbling the proud. See, you cannot come to Christ until you realize you are that stiff-necked person. You must understand your own responsibility in the death of Christ. Who's the stiff-necked in the room? All Christians say, that's me. And so there's hope for us, isn't there? It's hope for us. This is arguably the best sermon ever preached that was cut short by a rebellious audience. He didn't get to the gospel, to the good news part. Still part of it. Because I, I think being confronted, and I'll talk about this more as we go along, is good news. I think we're thinking of it wrong. I think we think of confrontation wrong. I know it from my own heart. For because I know that my joy is found in me saying I'm nothing and he's everything. So the proclamation of the gospel has four parts. We who are speaking the truth to the people, seek to get through all four of these points, these elements. But it always is placed at the feet of the sovereign Lord, right? Because as we go through these points, not everybody's going to like it and want it. And they're going to say no. And if God is converting the listener, they will listen and be engaged with the gospel. Beloved, last night I had an opportunity. I thought I was going to get to give the gospel to somebody. He called me and says, hey, I want to talk to you about your church. I'm interested in maybe visiting. And I said, oh, that's cool. You saw him, Karen. And he, he came, and I walked down and started talking to him, and immediately he went on a rant about why churches and all these things are wrong and it's evil and and a whole rant about various other things. <laughs> I won't go into them because it might cause some of you to struggle. But his heart was not soft. His heart was not about the gospel. 
And I, I, I wanted to just say, wait, do you see we need a savior? And I, it just didn't even, it wasn't there. He was like, no, no, it's going to be my way. It's like, I think there'll be a better church for you somewhere else. It's not ours. I, I, is that harsh? Is that wrong? He didn't want he didn't want God. He didn't want Christ. He had it already figured out. And he was right. And he was self-righteous. So, you know, it's our responsibility to seek to be clear, accurate, genuine, humble to the Lord's sovereign will while we proclaim the gospel. To proclaim it, to share, to proclaim these truths. So another part of the message or presentation of the gospel is also seen in the second point, confrontation. And again, I, um, me and Ken's brought up some of these ideas of whether we should use the word share, and I get it, and I looked up definitions, and I understand this. And ultimately, when you think of the word share, you sure don't think of confrontation, do you? <laughs> It's like, hey, you want to have a little bit with me? That's wrong. <laughs> when you look at the, the Bible's explanation of the gospel, it's very confrontational. As I mentioned last week, God-fearing people, however, who heard the gospel were primed and ready, right? They were primed already by the Spirit, Cornelius, Lydia. They were looking for the solution to their sin problem. I don't know about you guys, but those are the kind of people that we really want at our church, Right? We want people that are saying, uh, I need help. <laughs> I need help with this sin problem. I need you to show me how and what do I do. Not people that say, I got it all figured out. I'm better. You need to be like me. I'm, seeing, I'm checking your church out to see if you're like me. Because if that's it, then what's that? It's really elevating yourself up, and that's not what we need. We need hearts, people that are looking for solutions to problems. By the way, I'm just being honest. You, you, you uh, got a pastor just like that. You understand? I, I, fully aware. I'm not. I haven't arrived. Got a long ways to go. I, I'm, I'm convinced I'm the biggest sinner in the room. Not, not, not doubting that at all. I just need Jesus. I need the gospel. I need the spirit of God to work in me. I don't have it all figured out. I know where my hope is found, though. It's found in Christ, Jesus, the one who died for me and rose from the dead. God-fearers know that they have no hope in themselves. They fear God reverentially. They understand he's big and they're not. We're just that dust, that, that dirt that he decided to make. That's me. Broken pot in need of a savior. We present the gospel to people like that, and it's fun, isn't it? It's easy. <laughs> it's almost like they're ready. They're primed. Give me more. I just want help. I just need you, Christ. However, we have to face the facts. Much of our audience today, much of those that we interact with, are more like the Jewish people of Peter, that Peter and John dealt with, or... Paul dealt with, right? Like in Acts 2 or Acts 4 or in Thessalonica when Paul is chased out of Thessalonica all the way to Berea and they chase him to kill him. Get rid of this guy. Or when Paul's arrested back in Jerusalem, what do they do? They plot his death. And what else do they do? They say, I'm not going to eat until he's dead. Yowzer. That's the bulk of who we're dealing with, beloved. I'm sorry. I know you're like, 
No, come on. You've got to think better of humanity. No. People, please. You, you understand I, sometimes I can, sound, I can sound a little rough there, but it's the reality of who we are. Right? We are sinful people, right? Do we, is there any doubt of this? And we live amongst a people that are very sinful. And they hate God. They're like the Athenians who were religious but ignorant to their own rebellions against the known unknown God. Most people in our society hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. That is... They see being good as something they can attain without God's supernatural, powerful work of the gospel. That is our society, isn't it? They think they can be good people without God. So when we come to them with the gospel, what are they going to think? We're good. I'm fine. I'm clean. They're clean on the outside, however, to an extent. But the recognition of their sinfulness of their hearts is far from them. So what needs to happen? They need to be confronted. And that's what happens in Acts all the way through the book. In Acts chapter 2, we see it in 236... This Jesus whom you crucified, you crucified, talking to all the people, repent. He calls for them to what? Repent. Repent. In 3.13, it's his servant Jesus whom you delivered and disowned. You disowned the Holy One, Righteous One and asked for a murderer. Who was that? Barabbas. But put to death the prince of life. The one whom God raised from the dead. Verse 19. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped out. So what is the message ultimately? You sinned. Jesus died for sin. Repent and believe in him. Turn and believe in him. Acts 4. Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which you, which was rejected by you, the builders, and which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know what he does in his evangelism here? It's amazing. It's amazing. He just like, boom, you're responsible. You're responsible. And confronts them. You must repent. That's a gospel presentation. And on top of that, he makes it so narrow that there's no wiggle room. Right? Because he says there's no other way. For you to get out of the jam that you're in than this one that has been appointed for salvation. Do you understand when you go and you're talking to people that don't know Christ, what do they want? They want another way. They want another option to get to heaven. Do you understand? It blows my mind. It's one of the most grieving things about watching our society as deaths have increased for this last couple of years. Seeing the number of people that say, we'll see them again in heaven. We'll see them again soon. One day soon. Everybody's going to heaven. That's what the message of the world is. There's many ways. But our message is what? Exclusive, confrontational, and requires death. 
death to self. A change in my thinking. Everything I thought about God for 21 years of my life was wrong. It had to be changed. It's confrontational. In Acts 5, but Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our Father raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. You can see why. By the time Stephen gets there and says, You killed him, what are they going to do? Kill Stephen. Again, talking about repentance. So when he gets to the pagans, what's he do? He does the same exact thing. Look at the pagans in Acts 17. Look over there. Acts 17, 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or image formed by the art and thought of man. What's that? Again, direct confrontation to their idolatry. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, again, calling them what? These wise men. Calling them ignorant. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what? Repent. Change your thinking. Completely. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Judgment's coming, and it's coming from the one that died and rose from the dead. Direct confrontation. Acts 26, 20, even when Paul's talking to Agrippa. Now, if there was ever a time to throw us off pitch, it's when you're standing before a guy that could have your head off, cut your head off. Right? I mean, come on. This would be the opportunity for Paul to say, let me use a little seeker sensitivity to this guy. Because he might have my head. Nope. He says, repentance is necessary. Repentance is necessary. So confrontation is a necessary part of the gospel presentation. I know I'm long here, but you got to get this. This is so important. When we're in sin, we need to be told to see our sin in light of a just and holy God. Then we're told God's solution to our sin is the gospel, the good news that Christ came. But in some ways, the good news that Christ came is also what? confrontational too, isn't it? I want you to think about this for a second. Is the cross confrontational? Why is it confrontational? Because if you believe in him, then he died because of your sin. It's confronting you. It's confronting you. There were exhorts and rebukes and calls for repentance and belief. Change our thinking regarding God and ourselves and our need and turn from being lovers of self to lovers of God. And by the way, listen, how many of you are like, oh, could we just skip the messages on repentance? Come on. I know. But you know what? If you hate repentance now, if you hate repentance now, you might not know what repentance is. Let me explain. Let me explain. Listen to me. When we become believers, we start by turning and trusting in Christ, right? And we still live on in these bodies of death, right? So repentance becomes what? Our life. Do you understand how often we repent? If you're walking with God and reading his word. Now I admit if you don't read the Bible at all. And you just wait until Sunday. 
you're going to hate me. You're going to hate me. You know why you're going to hate me? Because I'm going to tell you what the Bible says, and the Bible says what? Repent. That's what it says. It says that you're a sinner and you need Jesus all the time. That's what it says. You're going to hate me. I'm sorry. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to preach it anyway. Because that's what it says. But if you read your Bible every day, what are you going to find? Oh. It's not Mike. It's the Word. And I need to repent all the time. I'm always turning. I'm always recognizing I'm sinful. Not just when I got saved. If the last time you repented was a couple months ago, there's a problem. You think you're good. Or you haven't read the Bible. I know that's, that sounds harsh. I don't, I don't mean it that way. I want you to hear me. Confrontation is necessary. Because in this body of death, I must die daily. I must constantly confront the sinfulness that still remains. I'm killing sin daily. By the power of God that lives within us. We can think being told to repent is harsh and unkind, but I want, to, I want to suggest a different way of thinking for our church, for us as believers. Listen, I think it is good news. It's good news. It's great news. It's Joyful news. Why? Because being told to repent is to be told, turn to God and enjoy Him again. Sin is not where our hope is found. Sin is not where true joy is found. Sin is not our hope. Christ is our hope. And the greatest thing you can tell me when I'm in sin is to turn to God. Because it's there I find forgiveness and joy and peace and love. And a love that I cannot even fathom. When we are thinking unbiblically and in sin, the kindest, most loving thing we can be told is to repent. Turn from your sin and your lostness to the living and all-satisfying God. Turn to the one who paid for your sin and will help you find joy in him. Oh, beloved, I think there are so many people that don't understand repentance. They think that repentance means, oh no, now I have to feel horrible. Now I have to go and be miserable for a long time. I have to somehow feel so miserable so I can somehow earn back the favor of my God. If I will just wail and cry and be miserable, then God will accept That isn't repentance. That's penance. 
That's pray your Hail Marys and pay some penance. Repentance is beautiful. Repentance is finding the pearl of great price and saying, I don't need any of that anymore. Sell everything I have so I can have this pearl again. I found Christ. He's good. I love him. Sorry. God, forgive me. Valued my sin over the pearl of great price. That's repentance. And it's good news. See, by God's grace, when we recognize our need of God and that He's provided the solution for our problem changing our views over the sin that entangles us and embraces us is good news. It's joy-producing, isn't it? It's all satisfying. How many of you, after you've repented, you're praying, you're seeking the Lord, it's those times where you're like, wow, he died for even me. That you just go, this is the greatest in all the world. God still loves this wretched sinner that I am. <laughs> oh, beloved. So when we talk to people, we're going to confront them. We've got to show them that they're not good. That they need him. But the vast majority of the people that we go talk to today and our jobs and stuff, what's their phrase? I'm good. I don't need saving. Or they say, I tried Jesus and it didn't work. I tried the church thing. Or they say, I'm better than many Christians I know. I believe in Jesus. But he lets me be who I am. All these forms... These are all just forms of self-righteousness. They're not dependence on Christ. They're not the exaltation of Jesus. They're exaltation of who? Themselves. What needs to happen is true repentance, and we have to confront in order for that to happen. God calls us to present him this way. The good news is that Jesus came to set us free from this, right? Ultimately, people need to hear what they think is backwards. What they believe about God is upside down. What they think about themselves is the opposite of what's true. What they need is a Savior. And what they need to do is turn to Jesus for salvation. Repent and believe in Him. That's confrontation. That's, that's the gospel. This brings us to the third, the motivation. So why did the disciples in the early church make such a big deal about proclaiming the gospel? Why did they do it? What motivated them to go out and share? Obviously, proclaiming the gospel was an act of what? Obedience. It was obedience. Okay? Yes, it was. We know this from Acts 5.27. When they had brought them, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Do you, do you see the tw twist of irony here? If his blood would be upon them, and they really got it, they would get saved. They'd be saved. They were trying to do a good thing by getting them to recognize that they had killed the Messiah and he could have paid their sins. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. There you go. What's the motivation for evangelizing and sharing the gospel with people? Obedience. Obedience. 
Second, there's another hint in the, in the same verse down in Acts 5.32. And we are witnesses of these things, so, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We see this. We see this, the empowerment by the Spirit. The empowerment by the Spirit. Remember, Jesus had told them to be witnesses when the Spirit came upon them and empowered them for the task back in Acts 1. Now, I love this because, do you know, these are still those same 12 apostles that did, or the 11, not 12, but 11 of those guys were the same ones that when Jesus was arrested, what happened to them? They fled. They were afraid. They weren't bold. So what happens at Pentecost is shocking. Listen closely, beloved. Where does the motivation for evangelism come? It actually comes from God. The Spirit himself actually motivates us to share. He works in the believer to cause them to witness to what Christ has done. So the question is, was the Spirit witnessing? Was he speaking audibly? Now, there are a couple of times in Acts where he does speak audibly. But is that what this is talking about? No, I don't think so. I think it's talking about what? Him speaking through the apostles. He was working and motivating and empowering them to do it. I've been rocked over the years. I've been rocked over the years in my ministry. One of the things is, is that sometimes when I'm standing up here and I'm teaching the word, I'm like, wow, this is all you, God. I can't do this. You don't know. I have these wild conversations with myself while I'm talking to you. Did you know that? Sitting there going, wow, where did that come from? Whoa, God, you are amazing. I've had these wrestles because... If y'all haven't noticed, I just wear everything all out there for you to see. That can create some problems. Some people can think I'm nuts. And there have been times, tears, where I've questioned, what am I doing? Is this right? And then you come to a passage like this and you think to yourself, I gotta trust the Spirit's working. I gotta trust it. I gotta trust Him. He empowers. I know my voice is hard to listen to. I feel bad for you guys. I've listened to myself. I listened to myself this week. I really do feel bad for you because I don't have Adrian Rogers' voice. And my abilities, oratory abilities, are atrocious at times. I'm literally the Amos, the farmer prophet. But I know something. God's at work. And he's working in this broken pot up here. And the word of God is true. And if you leave because you don't like me, I'm sorry. I pray that God helps you to find a place that you hear the word. When you stand before somebody to share the gospel, don't think about yourself. Don't think about how good you are at presenting the gospel. Don't think about any of that. Think about God. His glory, His name, and trust the Spirit to work in you. 
Because that's all that matters. Ken and I have been talking and thinking on this idea of what's going to be on my headstone. Here's what I want on my headstone. Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about the Spirit of God working in me for the glory of God. My goal from now on Every word that comes in my, out of my mouth is to make much of Christ and nothing of me. I hope that's your goal. And no, I didn't finish. And yes, we're going to do it again next week. Because there's another really good point I got to cover. Let's pray. Father, you are good and kind to us sinners. You see us in our sin, you confront us, and you call us to the joy of knowing your Son. Help us to grow, God. Help us to rely upon you, God. Spirit, please work in us and work in those whom we speak to. May your name be exalted in all that we do. May we decrease and you increase. God, I pray that if there's somebody here that doesn't know the saving love of Christ. That they're in their, they're dead in their sin, God. I know you know the ones that are in this room that are dead in sin. God, all of us believers cry out to you, please save. Please cause them to see their sin in light of your holiness. Cause them to cry out to you. Show them your glory. Grant repentance, God. We love you, Father. We love you because you first loved us. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.